Hello, everybody in podcast land. Welcome to STAT. This is your host, Karen. I am releasing three miniseries episodes from a podcast, a short running podcast, true crime podcast that I had called Mind of a Mass Murderer. I've decided that I still want these to be out there and to be heard. So you're going to hear three series that come up in case you're wondering what the heck is going on and what this is all about. I stopped doing the podcast because I really wanted to focus all my time on stat and I'm looking to start it up again one day. So in case you're wondering what this is all about, I'm going to introduce you to Mind of a Mass Murderer, special episodes, and here is the Dunblane Massacre. Enjoy. My initial reaction was to put my arms up, which is what I did. That's why I was shot through the arms. Um, And um, from then on in, it was rapid fire shooting and killing instantly, instantly. Because after he turned, for me, he turned to Gwen, who was sitting at a bench at the back of the gym. And then the other adult, who was a teacher helper, uh, was also shot. And then he targeted the children at very close range afterwards. It was time for gym, the best class of the day. The morning had been fun so far. The students had just attended an assembly, and now it was time to play. As the door clanged closed to the gymnasium, heavy footfalls could be heard echoing down the empty corridor. It was not a tardy student or a teacher. It was a deranged, gun-toting monster hell-bent on killing as many children as possible. The happy sounds of children playing were replaced by the explosions of gunfire and screams of terror. Within minutes, 16 children lay dead, along with one of their teachers and many, many others injured. The murderer, 47-year-old Thomas Hamilton, ended his reign of terror with a self-inflicted gunshot to the head. This is the Dunblane Massacre. And you're listening to your host, Karen, as I invite you to dive into the deep end of the dark, cold waters of the mind of a mass murderer. Thomas Hamilton had a very disturbed, difficult, and confusing childhood. He was born May 10th, 1952, the child of Agnes Hamilton and Thomas Watt. Thomas's mother was 18 when she married Thomas Watt and had a child right away. When Thomas was four years old, his father had an affair and left them both to fend for themselves. Unable to cope on her own, she asked her parents to adopt Thomas as their own son. In fact, Agnes's parents were her maternal aunt and uncle by the name of Catherine and James. Agnes Hamilton was born 1931 as a result of a fling her widowed mother had with a man by the name of William Rankin. The stigma, shame, and humiliation associated with a child born out of wedlock at that time represented a local scandal with the associated anxiety and feeling of not belonging, which is why Agnes's mother, Rachel Hamilton, asked her sister, Catherine, to adopt Agnes. And as a result, Agnes was adopted at five years old by her maternal aunt and uncle. History repeating itself, Catherine and James adopted Tom and were raising Agnes and Thomas as brother and sister. Just to note, even though I don't have a lot of information about Catherine and James, she was referred by the community as the mother from hell. His is a story 
of a life of unresolved trauma being played out from one generation to the next. He had no father figure. James was uninterested in Agnes and Thomas and didn't interact with them. There was a disturbing relationship with him and his mother, sister, and there was a 21-year age gap. It must have had a profound effect on his personality with feelings of abandonment, confusion, shame, loss, humiliation, and anger. The community was very suspicious, and there would have been gossip. Thomas Hamilton was described as a loner, unmarried, living in a ground floor council flat, unemployed, on benefits, with significant debts. He was known largely in the area as a misfit. At the age of 22, three very significant things happened in his life. He found out about the secrets of his family, he was kicked out of the Boy Scouts, and he got his license to buy guns and ammunition. This is how he was described by members of the community. I just thought he was a very sleazy character. He came over with a very soft voice, so I didn't think that he'd be violent at all. Uh, violence didn't come into my way of thinking. Um, to me, he was more a, a type of chap who would be touching up young boys. The things he was asking them to do, uh, the things he was doing with them and to them, and at the same time, he kept on taking copious amounts of photographs. Uh, and um, the, the youngsters felt very unhappy about this and very uncomfortable. And there was some allegations of touching. Let's explore Thomas Hamilton in his early years. After a primary education in Cranhill and Stirling, Thomas attended Riverside Secondary School, Stirling and Falkirk Technical College in 1968. In that year, he'd become an apprentice draftsman in the county's architect's office in Stirling. In 1972, he opened a shop at 49 Cowan Street in Stirling, known as Woodcraft, which specialized in the sale of do-it-yourself goods and supplies. After about 13 years, he gave up the shop and registered as unemployed. In 1985, his mother Agnes moved to live in a house of her own. In 1987, Thomas Hamilton and his adoptive parents moved to 7 Kent Road, where he continued to live until 13th March 1996. In August 1987, his adoptive mother Catherine died, and five years later his adoptive father moved into a sheltered housing, so leaving Thomas in the sole occupation of the home. He remained in contact with his natural mother, visiting her about twice a week, he received state benefits until November 1993. However, at the same time, he carried on the activity of buying and selling cameras and camera equipment and carrying out some freelance photography to make ends meet. One of the significant moments in his life that occurred when he was 22 years old was his association with the Boy Scouts. He was a venture scout, and he was appointed as assistant scout leader of the 4th and 6th Sterling Troop he seemed very keen and willing and did not present any problems. In the autumn of 1973, he was seconded to be the leader of the 24th Stirlingshire Troop, which was to be revived in Bannockburn. On one occasion, he volunteered to take some boys on his boat for their proficiency badge work, but he was not permitted 
as the boat had insufficient life jackets and no distress flares or oars, and he had inadequate knowledge of the waters. It was one of the first incidents where he showed poor insight, felt his skill level was way beyond what it was in reality, a very dangerous attitude when in charge of young children. A number of complaints were made about his leadership, the most serious of which were concerned with two occasions when the boys that were in his charge were forced to sleep overnight in his company van during very cold water in Aviemore. His excuse on the first occasion was that the intended accommodation had been double booked and he was warned of the need to double check such arrangements. On the latter occasion, it was found that no booking had been made by him on either of those occasions. The county commissioner, Brian Fairgreave, had a discussion with the district commissioner, Mr. Deschars, in which they agreed that Thomas Hamilton should be asked to resign. And that's putting it nicely. I'm going to play a clip of how things played out with Mr. Fairgreave. They had slept in an open van in the months of March in the Scottish Highlands where the weather can change within the hours. I felt it was a desperate action and that had these boys whose clothing was by this time wet slept overnight in the back of a transit van and if once again the temperatures had plummeted then I think we would have had a crisis on our hands. I was so upset that I did not ask him for an explanation, I just asked him for his warrant. And that was the finish of Tommy Hartman, so far as I was concerned. Mr. Fairgreave wrote to the Scottish Scout headquarters in order to give them his views about Thomas Hamilton, as he considered that he should not be a member of the Scout movement at all. On May 13, 1974, Mr. Deschars wrote Thomas, requiring that he return his warrant book. Despite repeated requests, he did not do so for some months. Typical petulant behavior of a narcissist. In Fairgreave's letter, dated June 29, 1974, he wrote, quote, While unable to give concrete evidence against this man, I felt that too many incidents relate to him, such as I am far from happy about his having any association with scouts. He displayed irresponsible acts on outdoor activities by taking young favorite scouts for weekends during the winter and sleeping in his van. The excuse for these outings was being hill walking expeditions. The lack of precautions for such activities displays either irresponsibility or an ulterior motive for sleeping with the boys. His personality displays evidence of persecution complex coupled with grandiose delusions of his own abilities. I am suspicious of his moral intentions towards boys. Mr. Deschars also submitted a form to Scout Headquarters to the effect that Thomas Hamilton was not considered to be a suitable applicant due to his immaturity and irresponsibility. This resulted in his name being on the blacklist, which is intended to ensure that unsuitable applicants are denied an appointment in the Scout Association. Such a record is also consulted on occasions when an outside inquiry is made as to whether a former scout leader has provided satisfactory service. This didn't stop Hamilton from trying. Hamilton tried to become a scout leader in Clackmannanshire. He explained to the scout leader there that he had written to Mr. Deschars on April 28, 1974, in which he tendered his resignation as a scout leader 
on the 24th Sterlingshire Group and criticized the conduct of Mr. Deschars as he stated that his intention was to transfer to another district. There was no such letter. He stated this after he was fired and been caught lying prior to this. He wanted to create a false impression that, through his own resignation, he anticipated the withdrawal of his warrant. In February 1977, after making a number of attempts to return to scouting, Hamilton requested the Scout Association to hold a committee of inquiry into his complaint that he was being victimized. The request was denied. In April 1977, Hamilton stated in another letter that he was no longer going to try and pursue getting another warrant. Quote, as I do not want my good name to be part of this so-called organization in this district. End of quote. However, he wasn't able to control his obsession because he continued to send letters of complaint. In 1978, Hamilton tried to get his warrant from another group. The leader of that group consulted with Mr. Fairgreave, and he was told that he could not join that troop. Hamilton persistently maintained that the scouts had not only ruined his reputation by terminating his appointment, but that they were linked with the actions taken by other organizations, and in particular, the police. After the withdrawal of his warrant, and trying many times to join other scout troops, he became increasingly involved in setting up and running of boys clubs of his own. He called his groups the Rovers, which is a name that is synonymous with the Boy Scouts in the UK. It seems he was trying to give false credibility to his clubs by using a name that could lead people to think that he was associated with the Scouts. Hamilton went on to run a series of clubs across Scotland, feeling that he could be direct competition with the Scouts, if not overtake them. He had an official-looking cover letter that contained largely fictitious committees and false claims of support from well-known local people, and it disguised the fact that his organization was effectively a one-man operation and that he was underqualified for the role he'd taken. At the time, unfortunately, he was able to use school facilities. During the period between November 1981 until his death, he organized and operated 15 boys' clubs for various periods, and that these clubs had access to school facilities in all the areas that they were located. So I want to talk about the running of the clubs. Now that Hamilton had set up quite a few boys clubs around central Scotland, he was running them as a one-man show on his own. The typical way in which Hamilton sought support for such clubs was to send leaflets to houses and primary schools in the area. His clubs were aimed at boys between the ages of 7 and 11. The activities of the club consisted of games such as football and gymnastics. Thomas held a grade 5 certificate for the British Amateur Gymnastics Association, which qualified him to provide coaching in gymnastics as long as he was supervised by someone who held a higher qualification. He did not abide by this, and again, he disrespected the rules and regulations. He felt that he knew best. He deceived the parents by telling them that there was a club committee to help manage and control and to keep high standards for the club in the best interest of the children, given the impression that he did not run these clubs alone. The fictitious club was known as Boys Club Sports Group Committee. He earned a modest income, which in the early days enabled him to finance his trading in cameras. Most of the clubs were initially extremely popular, attracting as many as 70 boys. However, over the lifetime of a club, 
the numbers dropped, typically to less than a dozen. In his early days, Thomas put down the lack of attendance in his clubs were because the boys lacked patience or determination. So he blamed the children for his decrease in membership. During the late 1990s, a number of incidents involving Hamilton should have sounded warning bells clinging throughout central Scotland, and they undoubtedly did. But those in authority did not or could not take appropriate action. In fact, they failed miserably, as you are about to hear. Doreen Hager was a mother whose son was in one of his clubs in Linlithgow. And here is a little clip from her friend that discusses an incident that happened there. One day, he came out with a gun and he threatened Mrs. Haggard with this gun at the camp. What did you see? I was coming back down through the woods and I seen him with the gun. And when I came towards him, he put the gun away back in his tent. He threatened Mrs. Haggard because she's, she was telling him that there wasn't enough food for the last day kids here. What did you hear him telling her? He said that he was going to shoot her. When we got back to the mainland, the first thing we did was we went to the police station and told them how he was treating the boys and how we felt about him. You know, we just thought, well, he was a pervert. There was nothing else for it. And we told the police that. The police were told on many occasions about Thomas's inappropriate behavior with the boys in his clubs. This lady, Doreen Hager, was so desperate to have Thomas reported and his club shut down that she premeditated an assault on him while he was leaving Lethlingau Academy. The attack was witnessed by a local reporter. Doreen Hager wanted the council to revoke the facility lease to prevent Hamilton organizing another summer camp that year. She hoped that if she had been taken to court for the assault, it would ensure that Hamilton was investigated. But he refused complaint. Her actions did lead to the Lothian Council becoming aware of the police investigations into the boys at Itchmone, and the lease was suspended. As usual, Hamilton complained, this time to the ombudsman, but no investigation was carried out. Unlike their counterparts at Central Region, Lothian Regional Council had been able to stop the lease. Another incident in July 1988 was at a summer camp organized by Thomas on Itchmone Island, one of the small islands in Loch Lomond. Complaints about the camp came to attention of local police who informed Central Scotland Police. Two of the Central Scotland Police constables visited the island. What they found was alarming. The campsite was a complete mess. Thirteen boys there were cold and inadequately dressed. They had not been allowed to wear long pants. You see, Hamilton insisted that the boys wear these very short, very small, ill-fitting black bathing trunks that he supplied because he said, otherwise the children do not show up appropriately dressed. They were also not allowed to wear shirts. So these boys were running around in, in tight, speedo-like shorts without tops on. And in the cold weather, they were not allowed to get dressed. The children also reported that Hamilton had slapped two boys, 
No charges were brought, but parents were contacted and some boys were taken home. Here is testimony from two boys who had attended this club. The first night we were there, we were all sitting around the campfire getting the heat. We were poking sticks in the fire and he picked four boys and took them near his tent and hit them all as hard as he could with wooden spoons about six times and they were crying for hours. There was one boy in the camp that he did not like and I think that was what sort of made the camp very unpleasant for me. Thomas Hamilton just asked him to come over to him and they just, he smashed him. I mean, it wasn't, I'm talking, uh, he physically whacked him, like as you would fight somebody. He really hurt the boy. The way he looked when he hit somebody, he just looked mad. His, the stare in his eyes when he hit, hit that boy, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. It was just, his stare was just, it was so, there was like no emotions, it was just madness. He wouldn't let you put a t-shirt on when you've got bad sunburn when you're peeling. He wouldn't let you put suntan lotion on when you're in absolute agony. If you wanted suntan lotion on, he had to put it on. You weren't allowed to put it on yourself. Either him or you weren't getting it. But if it was so dreadful, why didn't people just go home? They did. Some of the, the boys did leave. Uh, th there was many occasions the boys phoned their, their houses, their families. But because the boys were five or six, they just thought, they're just obviously crying over nothing, crying sort of over spilt milk. Like it was said before, these things were reported, but not followed up on, and were largely just ignored. His behaviors continued to get more and more bizarre. His obsession with guns was growing. Thomas Hamilton would get very angry and aggressive to the parents that removed the children from his clubs. In 1988, he took two handguns and his semi-automatic rifle to the homes of Bob and Liz Duncan to discuss why they removed their son from his club. We chatted on and had coffee in order to make him relax. Um, and that was when the conversation switched from the boys' club and um, Bob and he then uh, conducted a conversation surrounding guns. And um, I, I felt that it was rather unhealthy, but that's where um, Mr Hamilton felt most comfortable. I'd spent two years in the Royal Air Force and I'd fired a lot of different things um, and could relate to him from that point of view. But, but his was a far more narrow um, approach to the whole thing. And, and he had, I think he described at that time, handguns that he had and a couple of rifles. And he enthused about those and he enthused about shooting. And, and he could tell me that he was a marksman at X yards or, or meters. The parents didn't complain until a later date because they felt fearful to do so. Having someone bring guns to your home is unnerving, especially if it was your son's club leader. The matter was investigated by the Lothian police who passed it on to the Central Scotland Police. In June 1989, a memorandum from Chief Superintendent Gunn stated, quote, it may be a quite harmless display of weapons, but nevertheless, an action which leads a lot to be desired, end of quote. The memo was addressed to D.C. McMurdo, who decided not to issue a warning. On February 14, 1989, McMurdo had renewed Thomas Hamilton's firearm certificate, even though he knew of his past 
and he knew of his inappropriate actions with his guns. You're going to hear a lot about DC McMurdo from this point on, and not for a good reason. There were many warning signs in regards to Hamilton's behavior, his inappropriate behavior with children, his lies and his paranoid and aggressive behavior when challenged, his reckless and dangerous running of the boys' clubs, and growing obsession with guns, and his bizarre behavior at shooting ranges. I feel, and maybe I'm wrong here, if DC McMurdo did his job, the massacre may not have happened. He isn't completely to blame, but he and the police department played a big role. One of the most significant dealings in the continuing history of Scotland's dealings with Thomas Hamilton was the reissuing of his gun license. When Detective Sergeant Hughes had discovered that Hamilton had firearms license, he wrote a memo in which he requested that serious consideration be given to its withdrawal. Quote, I am firmly of the opinion that Hamilton is an unsavory character and an unstable personality. I respectfully request that serious consideration is given to withdrawing this man's firearm certificate as a precautionary measure and as it is in my opinion that he is a scheming, devious, and deceitful individual who is not to be trusted. End of quote. The request and the obvious warning it contained were dismissed by Central Scotland's hierarchy. D.C. McMurdo stamped this request as no action needed. He did not heed the warning. The material relating to Hughes' concerns wasn't placed in Hamilton's firearm file, nor was it recorded in the criminal intelligence. I think that this is a good place to end today's episode. There's a lot more to talk about. Coming in the next episode, you will hear about Hamilton's growing obsession with guns, his increasingly bizarre and inappropriate behavior with not just the boys in his clubs, but with the people in his community in general, and the months leading up to the horrible massacre. Here's a sneak peek. I think he was certainly a paedophile in the sense that he was interested, even obsessed, with young boys. He enjoyed the boys being in a state of semi-dress and that he would sometimes uh, hit them with, with birches and make them cry, and it's quite probable that he took some kind of sexual pleasure from that. I've seen him, and he, and he, and he was, had this long black coat on and a suitcase, and he says, says to me, you want to come in and see my new gun? Uh, a black revolver, right? And um, and, and I says, and I was asking him questions about it, and I says to him once, hey, how many bullets does it hold? And he goes, at 12. And he says, anytime you want to come and see him, just come to my house. And he used to tell his address and all that. Thank you for joining me here today, and stay tuned for the next episode of Mind of a Mass Murderer. The mind of a mass murderer I'm trying not to get worried But what will make somebody just switch up An innocent child to a savage killer Evil lurks for the energy What can make them just go on a killing spree Let's take a dive in the dark cold water Yeah, of the mind of a mass murderer